we have seen in the discourses between Job and his three friends is they continue on discuss, discussing the reasons why Job is suffering and how God runs the world. And we have seen that the answer of Job's three friends is that Job must have sinned, that God is just and the righteous are blessed and the wicked are punished. And that is uh, a system that we have identified formally as called retribution theology, that uh, basically the good people get good things and the bad people have bad things happen to them. It seems in our study of Job that Job believed the same thing until it happened to him and then he recognized that this doesn't work in this fashion. However, as much as Job is confused and is left grasping for trying to understand that how God does run the world, the three friends have been fairly unrelenting in their attack on Job, insisting that Job must have sinned. For our part, thankfully, we were given the first two chapters that told us Job hasn't sinned and the things that are happening to Job are not caused by anything that he had done of his own. This is something that is different, which one of the big points that has come about from the book of Job, a key teaching lesson that we have seen over and over again, is that it is not as simple as to say that God possesses a particular attribute and therefore that must be the way that God runs the world. In particular, to the book of Job, the three friends keep saying God is just and so therefore the only way to reconcile what's happened to you, Job, is you've done something wrong. And so it's important for us to see that Though God is a just God, that doesn't mean that's the only basis by which that he acts, which is what the three friends continue to say. I think that's fairly useful if we don't have time for a full sermon tangent, but you consider how often people will take a singular attribute of God and use that to try to disprove the existence of God, saying, well, because he's good or just or pick whatever attribute of God, therefore, this shows that the way things are in the world, there means can't be a God. That's one of the things that you see happening today. And instead of these friends denying that there is a God, they're saying, well, because God is just, that must mean you've sinned. And so one of the key points that we continue to look at again and again is God is far more complex in how he runs the world, that there are far more factors at work which keep us from definitively answering or understanding the reason why suffering occurs on any given occasion. We're here and we're kind of moving into what's essentially the middle of the book now. And tonight we're going to look at two friends. We're going to look at Bildad and his response. And we're going to look then at Zophar and again then the response of Job after that. We will lump them together because the things that Bildad and Zophar both say are extremely similar. And the things that Job says in response are also extremely similar. And you can see in the the movement of these discourses that we are coming to a stalemate between Job and the three friends. The more Job's friends speak in particular ways about God and Job, Job continues to be all the more firm in his stance that Job is right and the friends are wrong. So we're going to be in in chapter 18. And let's just look at the first four verses as Bildad begins again. And he says in Job chapter 18, verse 1, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider then that we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? 
I want you to notice that how Bildad begins is pretty simple. Just, here's Job, you're wrong. That's all Bildad basically says. You should listen to us. You should be quiet, submit to our theology. And that's really the end of of the matter. In fact, a pretty antagonistic statement there in in verse 4 to say, You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? In our language, we would say, do you think that the the earth revolves around you? And that's what they're saying. Uh, you, You think you're so special. You think you're so different. Uh, you need to submit to our counsel and listen to what we have to say. And then all you have Bildad do is he goes again and describes the fate of the wicked. Something we've seen these friends do on a number of occasions. But unfortunately, the way Bildad presents the fate of the wicked is not terribly innocent. He warms up very nicely and begins to say, you know, well, here's the things that happen to the wicked. They're hunted down and they must watch their steps because God is going to get them. But as Bildad continues to build his description of the wicked, what you will notice that Bildad does is he starts describing Job. For example, in verse 12 and verse 11, where he says, well, the, the wicked, they have terrors frightened them on every side. Well, remember one of the things that Job keeps saying is that God frightens him in dreams and visions and can't be having any peace or rest because God terrifies him. And so here's Bildad going, well, let me describe to you generically what happens to the wicked. The wicked are terrorized and they have frightening things and they lack strength. He continues to describe Job in verse 13 when he speaks about his skin being consumed. In verse 19, his posterity is cut off. In verse 20, people will see him and are appalled. Well, this is exactly what Job has been describing about what has happened to him and is what the friends have recognized is happening to him. And so what the friends do is continue to pile on and say, we will describe your condition as the condition of the wicked so that you will understand that that's who you are. Notice the ending of Bildad's words in verse 21. Bildad says, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. These are the people who don't know God. This is what happens to the evil people. This is what happens to the wicked. And so you can see what Bildad simply does is he just describes Job's condition and all of Job's suffering and all of Job's loss and says, well, that's obviously you. You're clearly wicked and you need to listen to our counsel that you need to repent. You've clearly done something wrong. I think we've become almost immune to that now at this point. You can imagine Job almost is as well as these friends just keep saying the same thing to him again and again and again, trying to beat him into submission to admit that he's done something wrong. This is what really gets, I think, Job upset is because chapter 18, what you have Bildad just basically laying out here is, well, life for the wicked can look good on the surface, but eventually it all catches up to them. God gets them eventually. And Eliphaz said that, as we noticed a couple of weeks ago, is that, well, the wicked somehow have some righteousness from time to time, and, and, and more importantly, they have good things happen to them, and perhaps even more so, they have wealth and all those kinds of things. However, it all catches up to them in the end. And so, yet again, Bildad lays out this very same thing. Notice what Job now says about this. Uh, because, well, before we get to Job, consider what 
the writer of Ecclesiastes says about that. Because Job is going to take a page out of what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. We're going to notice in some of Job's responses that he speaks very similarly to the writer of Ecclesiastes who speaks wisdom about the way God runs the world. Ecclesiastes 8 and in verse 10 where we read... uh, Then I saw the wicked buried that used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set on doing evil. Notice what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. He says justice doesn't happen immediately. That there isn't swift judgment or justice or any of those kinds of things. He says, I saw the wicked and they were praised in the city and all seemed to go well for them. And there was nothing that happened against them. And this is the reason why people continue in wickedness, which I think is a fairly accurate argument. One of the reasons why people continue in their iniquities and sins and wickedness is they don't think anything's going to happen because nothing has happened to them. And so they continue on. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. And that's what ultimately Job's response is going to be is observing these kinds of truths is that as we look at our world, justice does not come quickly. In fact, it is very evident that justice sometimes doesn't even come in this life. That there may not be justice that is given at all. If we want to take an extreme example of that, I think it's pretty easy to highlight when you look at some of the renowned, critically key, wicked figures of history and observe that justice didn't happen to them. I mean, notoriously, Adolf Hitler, did he have justice? No, not in the slightest. He just died. There was no justice. There was no any kind of uh, retribution or any kind of thing like that. And this is the observation that Ecclesiastes makes is there isn't justice in this life. There isn't justice that is speedy or immediate or any of those things. Notice that's the exact opposite of what Bildad says. Bildad says, hey, God will finally catch up to you and it's going to happen to you in your lifetime. And that's just not the case that the wicked do prosper. And the righteous do suffer. And notice this is where Job goes then with this in chapter 19. Chapter 19, Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. And are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourself against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Uh, Here is his basic statement of, would you guys stop? How long are you going to keep saying these things? How long are you going to keep attacking me? He simply makes the point that the things that you were saying, even if I were in sin, are inaccurate and they're unjustified. The way that you've handled me is completely wrong. And so then what Job does from verse 7 to verse 12 is he begins to describe some of the things that God has done to him. That Job is crying out for, out for help. That God is, I mean, Job is crying out for help from God. Job is crying out 
for justice, but there is none. His honor has been stripped from him. He doesn't know what to do in verses 8 and 9. God has demolished him, uh, and he is doomed. God has kindled his wrath against him and is counted as an enemy in verse 11. And so all of God's army rages against him in verse 12. So you just have Job feeling like that he is under attack from God, that they are enemies of each other, and he continues to feel that pain and that seriousness. And now the results of that, if you listen to what Job describes he is enduring, at this point some of the most um, startling uh, windows into what's going on in Job's life at this time. Verse, Verse 13, He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant and he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All of my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Here is a picture now of the severity of the trial that Job now observes and says, you guys understand how alone I am in this. He says all of his family, all of his close friends, and even probably the A most amazing statement, even the servants won't even be around him or listen to him. He has no regard in the eyes of anybody. He says in verses 17 and 18 that he is repulsive to his wife. Even the children that live in the town, they all despise him and call him names and stand against him. And verse 20 to say he's just nothing more than skin and bones at this point. He is just a terrible sight in all that he is endured. He continues forward then, and what he does in the rest of this response is really just a a plea for mercy. Listen to verse 21. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know that there is judgment. This is a fascinating response that he has here. You will notice that Job says, here's what I really wish would happen is I wish that all of my words were inscribed in a book. I wish that they were engraved on a rock so that they could be read forever. 
you know, and you read that and go, well, little did he know. Uh, <laughs> you know and, and there's a, a basis by which he wants these words to be uh, kept on the record forever. And you see that in verses 25 and 27. Job, why do you want your words to be preserved forever? Notice that he says, he says, because I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Now, Job, what are you saying by this? That's a fairly complex response that he lays out. One of the things that I think we're prepared for is we have studied the concept of Redeemer when we were studying the book of Ruth. And so that Redeemer concept, to refresh your memory, is the idea of one who was this close companion family member who had the ability to be a defender for those who were downtrodden, and in particular would be the economic benefactor. And that's what you see happening with Boaz in redeeming Naomi and redeeming Ruth in that scene as here is one who comes in to defend and will be that benefactor. So consider what Job is saying because this is a very staggering thing that he says. Job recognizes his innocence and his blamelessness to such a degree that what he exclaims is, I know that I will one day be vindicated. Even as my skin may be melting off of me, that God at some point in history is going to vindicate me. He's going to prove you three wrong, which is how the end of the chapter is in verses 28 and 29, saying you guys are going to be in trouble when I'm finally vindicated by this. And notice who his Redeemer is, is God. God is going to be the one who's going to vindicate me. God is going to be my defender. God is going to be my benefactor. And so here as I ebb away in my life, what I want is before I die, these words to be etched in stone so that people will one day read this and know that God vindicated me, that I was blameless and I did not sin. And this is not the reason why these things happen. So post it up so everybody will see it. That's what you have him doing there. I don't think there's anything here suggesting that he believes in resurrection or that this is a picture of Christ or any of those kinds of things. Rather, this is simply saying, I know I'm going to die. I think that's the idea of the skin is going to be off the flesh. But here is this this metaphor of that even if my skin is completely deteriorated, even with what was left, my bones and flesh with skin gone as it decays, I'm going to see God and, and that will prove that I'm right and my vindication will come. And that seems to be the hope that he longs for here is that God is going to defend him. Now, why that is so striking is because ultimately, as much as we have read about Job, and we will continue to read about Job, who questions the justice of God, he still comes back and lands on this foundation that God must be just. And so somehow, some way, I'm going to be vindicated. And he just kind of is, is recognizing, it's clearly not going to be now. I'm going to die. But eventually, at some point, so write it down for future generations to see... I'll be vindicated, I'll be proven that I didn't was blameless, that I was upright, that I did fear God, and that the things that happened to me were not what these three friends had challenged Job by saying, well, it's because you had done something wrong, it's because you had sinned. 
And I think that's what is so amazing about what happens right here is here we are and we're we're moving into the apex of the book. And here is Job saying, I'm going to see God. Uh, Even in the depths of his pain, there is a hope for something more. There is still this burning desire for vindication. And when God does finally vindicate, verses 28 and 29, he says, when God comes and vindicates me, you better watch out. It's going to happen and you're going to be found wrong. And how prophetic those words would be when you get out to chapter 42. And that's exactly what does end up happening to these three friends. And this is the hope that he has is I'm not going to make it. But somehow, some way that's going to take place. We'll circle back to that response in a minute. But he, he taps on that and adds to that even more with after what Zophar says. In chapter 20, Zophar I would just say there's really not a whole lot redeeming in that chapter because all that Zophar does is simply restate what the friends continue to say. In verse 5, the joy of the wicked is short and momentary. Well, that's what just, we just read Bildad say. Eventually they're going to get it. The wicked, they're going to die prematurely. You can hear what how these friends take the words of Job and use it against him. Here is Job saying, I'm not going to make it much longer. My skin's going to peel off of me. And here, go, and here goes Zophar. Well, I want you to know what happens. The wicked do die prematurely. <laughs> you know, wow. Okay. Uh, and so then basically the, the rest of that chapter is eventually God overtakes the wicked in, in his wrath and he does it in this life. And again, Zophar's point is that's you, Job. Eventually it all came back upon you. You basically got what you deserved. It just took a while for it to come about, but, but now it's all happened to you. Now, Job's response to that is also just as staggering as chapter 19 because he's basically dealing with a continuation of, of these arguments. And you notice then in, in chapter 21 how, how Job begins, you know, continues to, to challenge the friends and gives his immediate response. And, you know, you need to listen to what I have to say about this. And what he does in chapter 7 to 21 is just simply argue that you three cannot be right because the wicked do prosper. And notice how he describes it. Chapter 21, verse 7. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Notice he's just going to describe, this is the, what, the, what I see the wicked doing. Why do the wicked live and reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. The, cows calve, the cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock, and their children and dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice at the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him and what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out. 
That their calamity comes upon them. That God distributes pain in His anger. That they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let Him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink the wrath of the Almighty. You see what He just lays out? You guys keep saying the wicked get what they deserve. He says, I look around and that's not what I see. He says, what I look around and see is the wicked just get more powerful. They live to a ripe old age and they prosper. And he says, if you think that they're prosper, they even think that they're prosperous by their own hand. They do not acknowledge God. They say, we're not going to serve God at all. And yet they still don't seem to suffer as much as they reject God in every way. I think it's very interesting what he says in verse 8 because he even seems to challenge what we see in Psalm 1. He says, they're not like the chaff and blown away. I don't see it happening. The prosperity of the wicked in the mind of Job is inexplicable and it shows that how God runs the world is truly complex. And I would dare say that any Christian has had to come to grips With this very conundrum. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And this is where Job's at. Because he says, you can't tell me the wicked get their just penalty. I don't see it. You can't tell me that eventually God catches it up to them in this life. It doesn't happen. He just goes on and on and on describing the wicked. And he just simply says, it's not explainable. How can we begin to explain the prosperity of the wicked? I've mentioned in our Bible class because we have the song that says, we have a song that says it, you know, farther along in the very words, you know. And here we are in the song trying to get a handle on why is it that we see the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper year after year. And the chorus goes farther along. We'll know all about it. I mean, we sing the very words trying to get a handle on why is it that the wicked prosper? It's inexplicable to us. And this is Job's statement. Here are the friends and their simple answer is, well, they do get it and they get their punishment. They do get it in this life. And Job goes, that's not what I see at all. And I think he makes a very accurate point when you get down to verses 19 to 22. And when he talks about there, God will store up iniquity for their children. Well, it will pay paid out on their children at some point. And he, here Job goes, A, well, let's see it happen. Because I haven't even seen that happen. I mean, you don't necessarily see the children of the wicked getting the punishment. And he says, even if that were the case, that's inadequate anyway. For two reasons. One, if you could live however you wanted to live and the punishment was going to be meted out, you know, three generations from now, would you care? And the answer would be no. <laughs> so that's why he goes, that doesn't work to say, well, the children will eventually bear it. And furthermore, he points out death is not a punishment because everybody's going to die anyway. That's like saying Hitler got judged justice because he died. No, he didn't. There was no justice there. Absolutely not. And so this is the very thing that he is dealing with. He cannot understand why these things are the way that they are. Which again, he is modeling what Ecclesiastes says. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 1. Here is the teacher. I laid all this to heart, examining it all. How the righteous 
And the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. He looks at life and says, it doesn't matter if you're righteous or you're wicked. The same stuff happens to both of you. So what's the point? And this is what Job is arguing. Is well, How can we possibly say that eventually God catches it up to them? He goes, I don't see it. We don't see it in this life. We recognize that in our own lives as well. And so he even goes further. I love this in verse 29 as he continues to challenge that there is no justice. Verse 29. Have you not asked those who travel the roads and do not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity and that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? Here's what Job says. Ask anybody on the street. They'll tell you there's no justice in this world. (laughs) Go ask the guys traveling the roads. They'll all tell you the exact same thing. He says, I'm not telling you anything new. Everybody's seen this. (laughs) He says, who repays them for what they've done? Where does justice come in all of that? And thus he concludes his statement by saying in verses 32 and 33, even in death, it seems that the wickeds are celebrated and rejoiced, which again is what we looked at in Ecclesiastes 8, that that is the case. So what are you supposed to do with all of that? As here are two friends who put forward bad, false theology and the answer that Job gives. And the way that Job answers that, I think puts a finger on something that is really important for us in dealing with suffering and in considering how God runs the world and in dealing with trials. That one of the things that suffering does, and in particular to to make the point a little bit finer, that injustice does is that it does cause for us to long for the justice of God. It causes us to long for vindication. And that's what Job is doing in chapter 19 and in chapter 21. He is longing for there to be some sort of vindication. You need to do something. God, I know you're going to do something. He doesn't necessarily think he will see it. He might. He'll see it as he lays in the grave. But God, you have to vindicate. I want you to think about how that is so often the cry of so many people in the scriptures. We could go to so many Psalms. I'll give you just one, like Psalm 26. Here's the opening line of Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked into my integrity and I have trust in the Lord without wavering. Who hasn't felt that way? I'm being faithful. I'm trying my best. I'm trying to be righteous. Lord, do something. Show that I've tried to do this. Vindicate me in this before then, before the wicked. The book of Daniel. Daniel has described in his prophecy when we studied it a, a, a while back 
a picture of the holy people being shattered. The righteous are going to be killed. Remember, it causes Daniel to be sick as he reads about what's about to happen with these terrifying beasts that are to come. And Daniel, the book is ending in chapter 12 with, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name will be found and written in the book, and many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Notice Daniel's prophecy is interesting because he doesn't say, okay, and your people are going to be delivered and it's all going to be better. Notice the rest of the picture is they're going to be dead. They're asleep in the dust of the earth. But one day they're going to rise and shine like the sun. The righteous will rise up again. Notice Daniel does not have any prediction of your vindication will come in your lifetime. Daniel, after all of the horrible things that you read about are going to happen and all the travail that's going to happen, ends on the note of later, 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 far later, there's going to be vindication. Remember, even Daniel wants to know about these things. And the angel tells Daniel, seal it up, not for your lifetime. doesn't matter to you. It's not going to happen in your time. When you come to the book of Revelation, think about how often that's the message there. In chapter 6 of Revelation, you read about these saints who have been slain for the cause of Christ. You remember what they're crying out under the altar? is basically vengeance, vindication. How long, O Lord? How long till you vindicate? How long till you bring justice and vengeance upon those who are killing the righteous? Do you remember what the answer was? The answer was not, you're right, tomorrow I'll do that. And not even in their lifetime. The answer was, well, until the rest of your brothers and sisters in Christ are slain for the cause of Christ, it won't be till after that. And that's the very picture you see when you get to chapter 7. And you see, here's the marked people of God. Okay, here's the seal that goes out and all of them are marked. And then how does chapter 7 continue? They're all dead. They're all before the throne of God, praising God. They're all died for the cause of Christ. Chapter 14 does the exact same thing. And picture, here's the great multitude. Here's all the people of God. Where are they? They're dead. They're in the throne of God. This is ultimately the problem is here we are and we want vindication. When is vindication going to happen? This is what Job's cry is. When will the righteous be vindicated? Lord, when will you do something? And this is our problem that we deal with. The wicked prosper. The righteous suffer. God, when are you going to do something about it? And this answer of the scriptures again and again is not in this life. Not here. Not in your lifetime and not in the lifetime of this earth. It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. The righteous are not vindicated now. It's never the picture that's given. It is never, all right, you know, I guess give it another year. (laughs) No, it's always down the road. Ultimately, there will be judgment. Down the road, down the road, down the road. And it's something that we have to begin to accept that this is the picture that God has given us. The righteous are not vindicated now. 
The wicked and the righteous both die together. By the way, just keep in mind something that Jesus even told a parable that way. You remember in the parable of, depending on your version, the weeds or the tares. Here are the righteous. Here they are in God's field. And the enemy comes in and he sows a bunch of tares in there. And the servants say, should we tear up all the tares? And God goes, no. Lest you pull up some of mine. It will all wait until the final day. That's the picture that he gives. And you notice that is a grace of God that we're going to get these tares to become wheat. There's a long suffering and patience of God. Why doesn't God do something right now? We want vindication now. And God is saying vindication will come, but it's not going to be here. It's not going to be in your lifetime. It's not going to be something that you're going to see. And I think what becomes impressive then is we see in Job such great faith that he knew somehow God would do something to be just against the wicked. He did know how. You know, there's not, as we've talked about so many times in the book of Job, there's no, well, I know on the final day of judgment and then it'll all be taken care of. He doesn't have that concept. All he can figure is, I better write my words in a book for permanent record so that people will one day know that I wasn't sinful and I didn't have all this happen to me because I was unrighteous. That's not it. But I know eventually God's vindication has to come because God is a just God. As so impressive that faith that he possesses there. God will do something and he warns his friends and you better watch out because God will do something one day. And how dare you challenge that my faith is not true to God. God is going to vindicate and Job is right. And it is ultimately one of the things that you do see in the book of Revelation. If you think about the movement of that book and the first chapters two and three, you have a letter to these different churches and all of those churches are told you're going to suffer. You're going to be in great tribulation. You're going to die. It's going to be bad. Next picture is in chapter six. Here's the saints who have been slain under the altar. How long? How long? Until the rest of them die. We see chapter 7. They're the sealed people of God, yet they die. Chapter 14. They're the people of God, yet they die. Where's the vindication? Where's the vindication? Where's the vindication? Chapter 20. You have God with the great white throne scene opening. And all the books are opened. And it says that the sea gives up the dead. The graves give up the dead. And all the graves are opened. And now finally there is the judgment. That's when we're given the picture of vindication. That the books will be opened and every person will stand before God and justice will be received. God does not run the world by righting all of the world's wrongs now. That's just not how he has chosen to run the world. He does not run the world by righting the world's wrongs now. He doesn't right the world's wrongs shortly. 
And he doesn't right the world's wrongs in our lifetimes because these are the things that we want. It needs to be now. It needs to be soon. It needs to be before I die. No. And nor does God right all of the world's wrongs in this physical life. This is why you have so many New Testament writers tell us that our hope is not here and our hope is not right now. And our hope is not in this world or in this life. And our citizenship does not belong here. These things are all written this way and written to suffering Christians to remind them you're not going to receive your vindication now. The book, First Peter, here is Peter writing to suffering Christians. And he tells them you're exiles and you're suffering. When's the vindication? In the final day? Not in this life? Not in your lifetime? Not shortly, not just hang on a little bit longer and God will do something tomorrow. Our hope is in the future. God did make a promise in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 where God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so we suffer now, waiting for redemption and the vindication of our lives. One day God will act. One day God will act because he is righteous, because he is true, because he is just. And that is the whole concept behind Job saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. Is he says, it's not now, but one day vindication will come. One day my God will redeem. He will be my defender. He will be my benefactor. And he will prove me right even though I may be dead. That's the hope of those words, and that's what he expresses. And I hope we would have that same kind of faith, that we don't look for it here. How easy it is for our faith to be destroyed because we want to see God do something now. And that's not the way God has chosen to run the world. But he is a just God, and he will right the wrongs. I look forward to next Sunday night, Lord willing, the rest of these speeches, the final speeches of these three friends, they go at this angle one more time, and we'll talk a little bit more about vindication and justice, and one more hope that's layered on top of that as this poetry builds and builds and builds, as we long and hope for a Redeemer to vindicate us from this life. We're going to sing a song, and as we sing this song, we do invite you to come to Jesus. That picture in Revelation is beautiful because right before those books are opened, you have a wonderful vision of Jesus riding in on a white horse. He comes in, and he is the victor. And he comes in and conquers, and he puts things to right. And that is what we long for in our Lord and Savior, is that though we may suffer in this life, though we may be mocked and ridiculed and rejected for the cause of Christ. Our hope is not here and our hope is not in the opinion of this world that our hope is in God who will one day prove and vindicate that we are the people of God. Will you be faithful to him? Will you serve him through suffering? Will you serve him through difficulty and believe in the justice of God that one day he will vindicate? If you're ready to come to him, won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?